You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Yeah, sorry, microphone was muted. I was wondering why I didn't get any feedback. I heard a dog barking. So, somebody get a FaceTime so we can do this deal? Oh, I forget all about FaceTime all the time. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the URLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the URLC and what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Greetings, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello from a very blustery Illinois. Yeah, guys, Brent is away. Uh, He's not here in Nashville, which I'm finally back and glad to be back in Tennessee. Uh, Brent, you're somewhere in Illinois right now. Is that right? Yes. Site of a derecho that struck. Yeah, that's a word I had never heard before this week. That's right. So we'll get into it. What was it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I didn't want to just take over the opening. It's in his culture section, Josh. It's it's coming up in the culture section. This is called a teaser. We we want people to listen uh, for the the news later on. All right. Well, if you want to hear Brent talk about the derecho, stay with us. Uh, (laughs) But for now, Lindsay, uh, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. All right, so this week's content is heavy on the explainers because we've had lots of things going on that need just more thorough explanation. So one of the first articles that we have is actually a compilation by the staff, and its title is um, An Explainer, How to Make Sure Your Kids Are Safe on the Internet. So with COVID happening and children being at home, what's happening is that kids are spending a lot more time online, even with school right now, because some kids are having to be at home and learn virtually. So it is a prime time for those on the internet who are of uh, evil motives to take advantage of that. So parents need to be alert and aware. Uh, Some suggestions in this article are monitoring screen time, um, monitoring online presence, like suggesting that your children be on a computer in a place where you're able to see it. And then just to lay out some rules for internet usage so that it's clearly understood. So it's easy. I think it probably, we're all tired and it's probably easy to not be as vigilant, but it's more important than ever to be vigilant regarding your kids and screens. I thought this was a a, a good piece. One of the things though that it does make me think of are those parents out there that have to continue to work uh, and maybe are not able to be around their children all the time to to monitor what they are doing online. And so uh, this this piece does give some uh, some good tips for how to kind of set the parameters. But gosh, I, I know this is just such a tough season for parents, particularly those parents that are in two working households. Yeah, Brent, I think that's exactly right. The um Thinking about children's use of the internet is one of those things that before I was a parent, I assumed that this was not difficult, that if parents were just, you know, a little bit responsible, they would be able to, you know, easily manage their time, their children's, not not their children, not only in terms of like screen time, but also in terms of the things that they have access to. And the reality is that with the internet being such a central part of our lives, and now with uh, even education happening via internet, there are so many opportunities uh, for kids to find themselves in places uh, where, as Lindsay said, like bad actors can, uh, you know, can take advantage of them. And so, or they could just find themselves accessing something they don't need to see. And so, uh, this is a helpful explainer, and this is something that that Christian parents, especially in this season, uh, need to pay attention to. And it's such a good point, Brent, that there are parents who are doing their best and are not able to be at home 
uh, because they need to work. This is a hard season. And that may be where something like some kind of an internet software like Covenant Eyes or something like that comes into play. But again, we just want to get these practical guidelines uh, in front of everyone so that we can continue the conversation and, and just make sure we're all aware. So next up, we have an article by Jason Thacker on our staff, our creative director. And um, he likes to watch stuff having to do with technology and the internet. And so so there was an election that happened in a place called Belarus. And um, in case you don't know where that is, because I didn't until I looked it up, it's next to Poland. It's surrounded by Ukraine and uh, Lithuania. And uh, there's some real uh, human rights violations happening here. So the internet is being used in this country during this election in order to prevent the current president from losing power. So he's been president for over 26 years. He won a landslide 80% of the votes. Uh, but again, many see this, an internet shutdown happen at the same time. And many are seeing this as a subversion of um, the citizens' rights to be able to vote for whoever they want to vote for. That's exactly what's happening here uh, in this case. We are seeing basically an election that was anything but free and fair. Uh, it is almost certain uh, that the results of this election were manipulated and that they used both the power of the internet uh, as well as other forms of subversion to suppress uh, the actual vote total and so that the uh, current president can retain power. And so this is one of those ways where technology is being utilized to uh, literally prop up a dictator. And so Jason, you know, takes a deep dive um, uh, in this in this piece. And uh, if you have questions or are curious about it, I would encourage you to check it out. The, uh, the fact that it happened in Belarus matters uh, to me uh, specifically just because in my hometown uh, in, in Rocky Mount, uh, North Carolina, there is a partnership that exists uh, between a lot of Christians and people in Belarus that, that come uh, every summer. They come and stay, particularly children uh, who have different kinds of, of health conditions. It's better for them to be in the United States to receive different kinds of care and to be in a different kind of climate. And so I've met you know, over the years, uh, many people from Belarus and many people that I'm close with have uh, taken mission trips over there. And so there's just a personal connection there. And this is something that I paid a lot of attention to. Yeah, that's fascinating, Josh. It's an interesting backstory to um, to your community and the, and the things and different ministries and stuff that are going on there. You know, it's, it's important because we're seeing how in the midst of the coronavirus, um, authoritarian leaders and regimes are using COVID to take advantage of their people and their power and to violate human rights further. And so we have a piece in the weekly that came out today. It's also on our website about this and about some of the countries that are particularly guilty of doing this during the coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, it makes me thankful to be in the United States, in America, though we have our problems, um, but to be in a democratic uh, country. And it's important that we watch what's going on in the rest of the world, because as Jason says in this um, in this article, he says authoritarian leaders throughout the world are watching to see how we respond to the abuses of power um, because they can't be left unchecked and undeterred. Okay, and finally, we have an article by Michael Natelli, who actually used to be an intern with us. And he's talking about an angle of the coronavirus that maybe many of us have missed. I know I did. But his article is about how churches can serve those facing eviction during the pandemic. So in the midst of the virus, when many are unable to work or have extra costs and just are not having the same amount of income come in, especially renters, they're not able to make their rent. And whereas homeowners a lot of times can get some leniency on those mortgage payments, renters 
And landlords, rightfully so, aren't able to do that because the landlords need the money to pay their bills. So so he has just helpfully highlighted this problem and um, makes us aware of it, puts it in front of us. So one of the most helpful parts of this article is that Michael lays out some practical ways that churches can help. So for instance, he says, you can start with something as simple as taking a rent relief offering to help meet the needs of families that you're aware of who um, are not able to make their rent. And then he mentions that you can utilize your church property, and he gives um, suggestions as to ways that you can do that and ways other churches have creatively done this. And then for pastors, he says, start with your own flock. So just be aware of the people in your church. Make sure they're accounted for. Make sure that they are taken care of and that they don't have they don't have issues meeting their, their rent or their mortgage. And uh, especially, he says, if we have to f- see a second lockdown— It just might get even harder for people. So just be aware. And then finally, he goes into the biblical reasons why churches should help. Um, That our God is one who delivers the needy, who cry out, and he helps the afflicted and takes pity on the weak. And we should be those same kind of people who represent Jesus to those uh, who are in need. So again, we are just really thankful that Michael brought this to our attention and made us aware of ways that we as Christians can, can serve others. And this is a really timely piece because of some executive orders that were signed last weekend by by President Trump and his executive order on eviction. So there was one specifically tied to the subject matter. He directed the Treasury Secretary and the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development to identify available federal funds that could provide temporary financial aid for struggling renters and homeowners. The, the only issue there is that uh, some, some analysts were saying it didn't provide quite the certainty uh, that a change in law would have uh, had this come from, from Congress. And as well, it's tied to are there available federal funds? So there are still some funds left over from the uh, original CARES Act that passed in the spring, but it is unclear uh, exactly how much is left and can be tied to uh, folks who are facing eviction. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. And I think this is a, a great opportunity uh, for the church to stand in with the resources that the Lord has provided. You know, and there's just a lot of uncertainty everywhere regarding every facet of life in the midst of this pandemic. So we've just got to be aware, keep our eyes open, our ears to the ground, And pay attention to the ways that our fellow brothers and sisters are struggling and then our neighbors and families and individuals in our communities. So um, there are plenty of other helpful articles on our site this week, as well as podcasts and other things like that. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And Brent, that takes us to our culture section for the week. So tell us what's going on. That's right. Well, this week we start in the political arena for the biggest news story. As probably everybody knows by now, former Vice President Joe Biden has announced that U.S. Senator Kamala Harris will be his running mate on the Democratic ticket for president. The L.A. Times reports uh, Kamala Harris's paper of record in her home state centered her unsuccessful White House bid last year on a promise to prosecute the case against President Trump. And she was widely seen as a frontrunner to be Vice President Biden's vice presidential pick. With her statewide experience, As California Attorney General and four years in the U.S. Senate, Harris was among the most conventionally qualified of the half dozen or so women under consideration in this uh, very diverse crop of contenders. The report goes on to say that in many ways, Harris, 55, is a safe pick 
because she is broadly popular in the Democratic Party and well acquainted with the rigors of a national campaign. On Wednesday, the two appeared together on stage for the announcement, and the stage looked a little different. The presumptive Democratic ticket made its debut in the gymnasium at Alexis I. DuPont High School in Biden's hometown, where the former vice president touted Harris's history as a senator and attorney general. Okay, Brent, I have just a couple of questions about this. Number one, uh, you know, he apparently made the announcement. Uh, Vice President Biden made the announcement of his running mate via Twitter. That has to be a first, right? Uh, actually, I think it went by text to a whole bunch of people that had signed up at, at JoeBiden.com on his presidential website. Uh, but then, yes, shortly thereafter, it was announced on social media. All part of the rollout. Yeah. The other question I had is, uh, how do you think that Kamala Harris, in terms of a running mate, how is she seen? Is she somebody who is, uh, you know, very progressive? Is she seen as a centrist, a pragmatist? Like, what is, what's her branding there? Well, that's probably part of the value uh, for, for why Biden picked her. I think folks across the spectrum, particularly uh, from the center left on further left, they can pick out different attributes of her record uh, to, to find reasons to support the ticket. Politico reports that apparently the Democratic base in general likes the pairing. Joe Biden's campaign raised $26 million in the 24 hours after he selected Senator Harris as his running mate. The massive cash haul, which included 150,000 first-time donors, is a signal of Harris's ability to generate enthusiasm for the campaign and the history-making moment of her selection as the first woman of color named to a major party presidential ticket. So, I mean, needless to say, it, it was a historic moment in presidential campaign history. And, and so now uh, the field is set for the fall with the Biden-Harris ticket facing off against the incumbents, President Trump and Vice President Pence. So speaking of President Trump, there was a very concerning situation that took place at the beginning of the work week at the White House. Axios reports that President Trump was escorted out of a coronavirus press briefing by a Secret Service agent on Monday evening after law enforcement reportedly shot an armed suspect outside of the White House. The 51-year-old suspect approached a uniformed Secret Service officer uh, near the corner of the White House grounds, and he said he had a weapon, the agency said in a statement that was released later in the day. He, quote, ran aggressively towards the officer and in a drawing motion, withdrew the object from his clothing. The Secret Service agent took fast action and shot the officer in the torso. Both individuals were taken to a local hospital for treatment. We should note the White House perimeter was never breached, and the incident is now under investigation. And it is just a reminder of uh, when you occupy that office or you are a staff member, uh, for the individual that occupies that office, or you are a member of the press uh, who reports on that office, uh, there are definitely times where your life could be in jeopardy. On a side note, and a little bit less serious, I always thought it would be cool to be a Secret Service officer. I remember visiting D.C. and you'd see the black Suburbans drive up, and then they come out of the car with their sunglasses and their earpieces on and looking all spiffy and... It just seemed pretty cool. That's interesting, Lindsay, that you wanted to be a Secret Service agent. Um, fun fact, do you know why the Secret Service was, you know, established in the first place? What their initial assignment was? No. Tell us, Josh. Well, it has to do with where they are currently situated in the federal apparatus. That's right. 
Treasury Department. Their job was to stop counterfeiting. Interesting. I venture to say that me and uh, many other listeners did not know that they are currently situated in the Treasury Department of the federal apparatus, Brent. Yeah, so that's right. I'm glad we we did a real-time fact-check here. It looks like the Secret Service was actually reorganized into the Department of Homeland Security. I remember some of those conversations uh, from when I was up on, on Capitol Hill. But uh, needless to say, what you were saying is correct. Originally, they were organized in the Treasury Department. So now moving to the story that we teased about earlier, the wild weather in the Midwest. Uh, the region was slammed this week by a fast-moving windstorm known as a derecho. Derecho. <laughs> known as a derecho. <laughs> that Is it a derecho or a derecho? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a derecho. You should make a joke about how we have to keep, you know, learning how to say words for the podcast. <laughs> we, yeah, we should. So anyways, well, this derecho, it moved across the region from South Dakota to Ohio. Much of the heaviest damage was in Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana, where straight line winds of, get this, from 70 miles an hour to over 100 miles an hour trees, downed power lines, and tore through buildings. The Weather Channel reports that two individuals unfortunately lost their lives and over one million lost power. So where I am in Illinois was actually the site of both 70-plus mile-an-hour straight-line winds and a brief tornado touchdown as well. That is really awful, Brent. Just to, um, I've, I've seen people affected both in Illinois and in Iowa, and to know that over a million people losing power, uh, the, you know, that problem for uh, parties to try to get that back online, we're told that, you know, you have power now and are able to uh, not only do the podcast, but that, you know, your family's doing well. But that is just, I mean, that is just wild, especially for a storm or a series of storms or, or whatever technically constitutes a, a derecho even is, because that's something I've never heard of before. That's right. Yeah, we, we lost power here at, uh, at my in-laws house for, for two days. So, but thankfully, uh, that was mostly the extent of, of the damage around here. We had some trees that came down and whatnot, but uh, thankfully everyone here uh, was safe. All right, so let's move over to coronavirus news. A new report finds that cases of the virus in children have risen dramatically in the last four weeks. CNN reports that there has been a 90% increase in the number of COVID-19 cases among children in the U.S. over the last four weeks. One of the experts that they interviewed said that multiple factors have led to a recent increase in the number of coronavirus infections in children in the past couple of weeks, including increased testing, increased movement among children, and a rise in infection amongst the general population. Thankfully, deaths among children still seem to be very rare, Though the story points out that children are highly susceptible to transmitting the virus. That is certainly a lot to think about as the school year is about to begin in many parts of the country. Well, and I think somebody was sharing on our Slack channel, our work Slack channel today, maybe it was you, Brent, that some schools have even closed before they've even opened. So this is just going to be a challenge. We keep saying it, it's going to be a challenging time for lots and lots of parents around the country. The school year is going to be a wild roller coaster of a ride, I think. That's right. Uh, and yes, I, I was the one that posted that story. So in my hometown of, of Chattanooga, two schools, Thursday was supposed to be the first day of school before they even opened. <laughs> they kept the schools closed 
because members of, of the staff had, had tested positive. And so now those two schools have, uh, have closed down temporarily. And uh, Lindsay, you are 100% correct. Uh, this is going to have to be a season of abundant grace <laughs> from parents to their children, uh, from families to their schools, uh, from administrators to staff, uh, for employers to their employees. Uh, it, it's going to be a challenge and we just need to embrace what is ahead. <laughs> It's true. And I will have to say, though, that I've been impressed at some of the stories I've heard or some of the pictures I've seen of the ways that schools are being creative and trying to keep teachers and students safe. I mean, it's it's really impressive in some places. I feel bad that the teachers and, and uh, kids have to wear the masks almost all day long. But the way they've separated things out in classrooms and things like that uh, has been really encouraging to see the way that many administrators have stepped up. Well, so this week, Axios took a look at the pandemic real estate market, and it is very interesting to say the least. Bidding wars, frantic plays for big suburban homes with a pool, buying a property sight unseen, they're all part of Americans' calculus that our lives and lifestyles have been permanently changed by coronavirus and that we will need more space indoors and out for the long term. Existing home sales rose 20.7% in June over May, which is the the last months that we've had uh, information come in. And median housing prices rose in every region of the country. So here's what buyers are looking for. Fresh air, backyards, home offices, a pool, a homeschooling area, space for pets, home gyms, plus proximity to beaches, lakes, parks, and bike paths. It sounds pretty nice if you can get it. Well, having just you know, bought a home uh, in the middle of all this. I can tell you that it is absolutely crazy right now in the housing market. Uh, I did not, unfortunately, secure a home that has all of those items on people's uh, wish lists. But, uh, you know, we are very grateful because my, my number one criteria was that it has to have grass. And uh, even though we did, in fact, purchase this home sight unseen, it turns out it does have grass. So that was something we were really excited about. Well, so hopefully, though, this will, um, this will actually be a, a positive economic trend. Uh, We did get some good news towards the end of the week. Unemployment filings for the first time since the pandemic really started raging in America fell below a million filings. Uh, So this is is good news um, here in the U.S., and and hopefully uh, that number will continue to fall. But it's not all rosy. Uh, So just as we told you previously about the sharp drop in U.S. GDP, Lindsay, which GDP again? Gross domestic product. Alex, I'll take gross domestic product for 3000 please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our friends across the pond in the United Kingdom announced this week they've actually entered a recession with the sharpest decline in recent memory. In fact, the pandemic has caused an over 20% decline in their GDP, the largest uh, on record. Elsewhere on the international front, our colleagues at Baptist Press have a story about the killing of Christians in Nigeria that we all should pay attention to. BP reports nearly 150 Christians have died in a campaign of violence by militant Fulani herdsmen in Nigeria's Middle Belt that has taken place since April, including 33 Christians believed to have been killed as recently as August 5th through the 6th in the Kaduna State. 
Nigeria's government has provided little defense to residents of Christian villages in several states. Those residents have only been hampered by 24-hour curfews that are designed to protect residents, survivors told Christian Solidarity Worldwide and other international religious liberty advocates. This is definitely something that we should be in prayer about uh, for persecuted Christians uh, across the globe. Yeah, Brian, I'll admit before I um, saw the story in Baptist Press, this was not something that I was paying any attention to. And, you know, we think a lot, uh, we spend a lot of time at the URC talking about international freedom. And here we see uh, that these people are literally losing their lives and their lives are in constant danger. And their government is, you know, essentially doing very little uh, to, if anything, to protect them and to offer them safety and refuge. And so, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that I want to say, oh, of course, you should pay attention to it. Of course, they should pray for these people who are suffering. But, you know, what what kind of pressure could be brought? What things could be done uh, in order to, to secure protection for these people? Th- that's the question that I'm really left with. Yeah, and it's the kind of story that there really are no words for. Just thinking about these believers being faithful in the midst of violence that they know that they're likely going to face is just convicting to me in the midst of my comfortable lifestyle as a believer here. Also, it reminds me that there are several resources out there to um, to help us faithfully pray for persecuted Christians, uh, which I have not done consistently. But for instance, that book, Operation World, I'm not sure if y'all have heard of it, Get, gets updated every so often, but it it takes you to different people groups and and gives you a schedule where you can pray and learn about these people. Voice of the Martyrs can go to their site, but there are plenty of places that we can go. It's definitely I definitely have no excuse for not standing in solidarity with brothers and sisters who are facing this kind of persecution. That's a good word from both of y'all. All right, so to wrap up this week, we'll finish on a a slightly lighter note. Uh, we will end with sports specifically college football, or what we have left of it. That's right, the dominoes started falling this week as what many analysts predicted has begun to play out. It started when the Mid-America Conference, or MAC, canceled its 2020 season. And there were immediate reports over on ESPN that the major conferences, known as the Power Five, were going to do the same. CNN reported towards the end of the week that, in fact, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were the first to do so, but that the Big 12 would move forward with holding their season. The ACC and SEC, the other two Power Five leagues, have yet to declare how they plan to proceed amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Needless to say, there's probably a few more twists and turns to this, but it's, it's 2020, so expect the unexpected. Unless it's the worst, because yeah, then it's probably going to happen. You know, Brent, that's really well said, especially that tagline there, because it is 2020 and awful things just continue to happen. Look, we need college football just to revive our spirits and, you know, give us some joy on our Saturdays. And so I'm really hopeful that uh, at least a few of these conferences are able to play at least some games. I mean, it'd be great for them to have a full season and get to a championship and, and do the whole deal. But it would be really wonderful and some some welcomed relief in the middle of the season just to have some college football to watch. I agree. We just need a little bit of an escape, some entertainment, so we don't all continue to lose our minds. And I'd be okay if it was just the ACC and the SEC, uh, you know, because powerhouses. And also, I would like to leave y'all with a little word. Go Gators. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely going to need to be cut. 
I was going to say, for those who can't see, which is literally everyone who's listening, Brent's head almost exploded when uh, he heard the Go Gators. He's just triggered. <laughs> well, it, it's kind of like cicadas. It, it appears every every couple of weeks on the podcast. She just throws it in there. So, But anyways, well, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Now we're about to talk to our friend, Dr. Matthew Emerson. Uh, Matt is a professor of theology and the dean of Hobbes College at Oklahoma Baptist University, and we are so excited to talk to Matt today. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. As we're getting started, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're serving in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you also tell us just one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Yeah, so I'm the dean of the Hobbes College of Theology and Ministry at Oklahoma Baptist University. For the last five years, I've been a professor here uh, the Lord and the administration here chose to put me in this position, which I'm glad to do. Um, before I was here, I was at CBU for four years. Um, so this is entering my 10th academic year, which is crazy. Uh, right now, the Lord is teaching me to trust Him. One of the things that I often have to tell my students is that God is both good and in control at the same time. And if we forget one of those things, um, we've missed the one of the big teachings of the biblical story. And so just, you know, as with everybody else in the middle of coronavirus and we have five kids and, you know, I'm in higher ed, which is experiencing lots of turbulence right now. It's just uh, learning again in a new situation to trust God and to know that he's good in the midst of what he's doing in the world. Well, those are some good answers, man. Thank you for sharing that with us. So, Matt, uh, our, our podcast, we, we like to talk about uh, what's going on in culture. So can you tell us what things in culture you and the folks who are serving around you are paying attention to right now? Yeah. You know, in Christian higher ed, what we're trying to do is help our students understand God's world in light of God's word. So there are a number of different challenges to that these days. Obviously, conversations around sex and gender are a big part of that. But, you know, beyond that, Political engagement, how do you do that faithfully as a Christian? What, what kind of um, political engagement is appropriate? That's a big conversation right now. How do you think about race? How do you think about the image of God? You know, those are all big questions that everybody's asking and that we have to be able to answer well in the context of a, a Christian academic institution. One of the other things that we wanted to ask you about was uh, you had a book released recently uh, titled He Descended to the Dead, an Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday. This is uh, something that is definitely overlooked by Christians, but I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the book and why is this like why is this an important topic? What can we learn? Sure. So I've been using some standard prayers and Bible readings for my devotional life for a long time. I've been interested in this topic since I heard one of my professors speak on it in seminary. It got brought up in the context of some other things I was working on. So there's a number of different reasons why I became interested in it. But essentially, the biggest reason was, um, you know, I started experiencing people around me who I, who I care about, who I love, passing away and began meditating more on what it means to experience death as a Christian, not just my own death, but thinking about the death of others as a Christian. What does that look like? And how does Jesus speak to that? What does he say about it? What did he do to be victorious over it? One of the things that I began noticing was that on 
Saturdays uh, throughout the year, really, a lot of times there would be a specific prayer related to Jesus resting on Saturday between his death and resurrection after he finished his penal substitutionary work on the cross on Friday, he rests on Saturday. I thought, huh, I never thought about it that way. Uh, And then on, some people call it Holy Saturday, some people call it Easter Saturday, Silent Saturday, Um, that, that Saturday in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I would notice each year these just beautiful prayers that have written been written over the course of church history by other saints who have gone before us, reflecting on the fact that Jesus remained dead in the grave. He didn't he didn't die on the cross and then you know pop back up thirty seconds later. He remained dead, but in doing so, that he was he was gaining victory over death, that he was defeating the powers. Uh, I had never really reflected on what was going on on Easter Saturday, you know, as I was taking my kids to an Easter egg hunt or I was, you know, I don't know, watching the Masters if it happened to fall on Easter weekend or something. I just never thought about what Jesus was doing on Saturday. And, you know, starting to think about that, I realized also how many people feel very uncomfortable with the phrase in the Apostles' Creed that is supposed to deal with what's going on on Saturday, which is that he descended to the dead or he descended into hell. Um, And so, you know, I grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed in church. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist. I grew up in a mainline denomination. And, you know, I always saw this little asterisk uh, by that line. I heard other people talk about it like, oh, I believe the creed, but I don't believe that, that kind of stuff, you know? And I thought, all right, this line was, you know, this line was confessed by a bunch of people for throughout church history. So why is it that it's really not recited these days? Why is it that, you know, well-known evangelical theologians reject it and, and really stringently? So I started researching it and just, just realized that I believe that it's in Scripture. I believe it's taught in Scripture, which is the most important reason. I believe that it's uh, really foundational to a lot of things that the church has said about theology throughout church history. I think it has pastoral implications. I think that it, it helps us reflect on the fact that Jesus defeated death in the grave. It helps us reflect on the fact that Jesus is king over all things, not just in heaven and on earth, but also under the earth, that he's defeated his enemy and our final enemy, death, uh, and that he has released us, those who believe in him, those who have faith in him in this life. He's released from the prison of death through his own resurrection and then through our coming resurrection when he returns. So uh, I just, I began reflecting on what, where it is in the Bible, how it's been important in church history, and how it impacts us pastorally, and wanted to write a book about it. So that's how that came about. So in addition to writing, you know, we, we talked about this earlier, you're, you're now the, the dean there at uh, OBU. In this weird season, particularly the one that we're about to embark on, we, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, this new school year uh, that is beginning What's it like for you uh, as as this season is about to kick off academically? How are you leading folks through uh, what many suspect will be the most challenging school year in at least recent memory? Right. Yeah. You know, just responding to situations and especially the, the, the COVID situation with that peaceful presence, you know, hey, giving information that's needed for people to do their jobs, assuring them of policies and procedures that are in place if something happens, like a positive test comes back, doing the administrivia of moving classrooms so that everybody's social distance. I mean, those are the kinds of things that some of it is uh, disposition and some of it is just, you know, kind of grunt work, like sitting down for six and a half hours with the other deans and we move every single class to a larger classroom 
so that we can all be socially distanced. Um, you know, talking to people about masks and uh, assuaging concerns. And, you know, these, these are the different kinds of ways, I think, both administratively and dispositionally, that leaders have to provide that kind of peaceful presence that, that's only possible if you trust God to be doing what he's doing in the world, even if you don't quite understand what's going on. Your job isn't necessarily to answer the why is this happening. Your job is to glorify God in whatever situation he's put you in. I'm stealing, I'm stealing that from a J.I. Packer quote that's been circulating recently. You know, we might not be able to answer why, but we certainly can answer what can I do to glorify God. And a big part of leadership in a Christian institution, I think, is being able to respond that way. And so, you know, staying with this theme of, of things in the Christian world, one of the cool projects that you guys have embarked on, you're one of the executive directors of the Center for Baptist Renewal. Uh, a lot of our listeners probably have no idea uh, what that is or why that would be a thing that is necessary. So can you tell us just a little bit about what you do uh, through the, the center and why this is something that's important? Yeah, so Luke Stamps, and I serve as co-executive directors. Uh, Brandon Smith, who's at Cedarville, is our editorial director. And then Winston Hotman, who's at Southwestern pursuing a PhD, is our, our media director. And we started CBR to connect Baptist leaders and Baptist churches to the, the good that exists in the Christian tradition throughout space and time. So how, how, can we, how can we help Baptist leaders and Baptist churches see themselves as part of the larger church of Jesus Christ, both in terms of what we do in, in our Sunday mornings and in our discipleship practices and in terms of what we believe in terms of our theology? You know, it's not a situation in which we want people to give up their Baptist distinctives. That's exactly the opposite of what we would say. We want people to know more about especially our Baptist tradition not just about the Christian tradition, but more specifically about the Baptist tradition. And we believe that as, as we dig deeper into the Christian tradition broadly and into our own Baptist tradition more specifically, that that helps us grow into who God has called us to be today and in the future. So it's, it's retrieval for the sake of renewal. That's a good word, man. Thank you so much for that, Matt. Absolutely. Yeah, Matt, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for joining us today. We are, you know, always encouraged by the work that you're doing and uh, by the great stuff that's going on at OBU. Uh, just grateful to God to see all of that. And so we'll be praying for you as this semester kicks off and you do all the things that are necessary in order to continue to serve students uh, and, and provide instruction in the middle of this season. But man, we just want to say so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. So Lindsay, you're up first this week. Tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so mine is nothing serious, all lighthearted. Speaking of escaping, uh, my husband and I at night like to eat dinner after our daughter goes to bed and watch a show or something. So lately we have been watching America's Got Talent. And um, of course, I can't endorse everything on there, but it is a well-produced show. It's hilarious, actually. And um, there's some genuinely good talent and some genuinely terrible talent. Last night, there was a rapper who popped his eyeballs out of his head. Popped his eyeballs out. 
like could just pop them out. Um, and then there was this other guy who was Simon Cowell's biggest fan. And he came on, um, he said he was very creative and he was a singer and he wrote his own song and it was called Conga Bonga. And you can go online and listen to it. <laughs> it was hilarious. Conga Bonga. One of the lines was archipelago where the dolphins go archipelago where the dolphins go. <laughs> Needless to say, he did not make it through. So if you're looking for a few laughs, some lighthearted entertainment, so AGT is your thing. So uh, two things. Isn't it pronounced archipelago? Uh, not according to this gentleman. It was archipelago. <laughs> All right. And I've then, always said archipelago. I, I think your emphasis is on the wrong syllable if you pronounce it that way. But well, that was be, part of I'm, his song. I might be wrong. And then just to clarify, so you're, the thing you're bringing to the table is a reality show that Simon Cowell debuted in 2002? Yeah, but there are new seasons every year. It's going the distance, man. It is going the distance. There's a reason. Simon Cowell, he knows what he's doing. Speaking of Simon Cowell, apparently he broke his back riding a bike or something this week, uh, which is totally insane. Trying out an electric bike in his backyard. What kind of fall was that? I have no idea, but it must have been pretty bad. So anyway, check it out if you're just looking for a little bit of entertainment in the midst of the pandemic. Um, so for my lunchroom this week, uh, two things to share with you. Number one, so started a few months ago, a new Bible reading plan, and I'm kind of moving back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, uh, so I've read through Genesis and I've read through Exodus and the Old Testament, and now I'm starting Leviticus. Well, I've read Leviticus a number of times. And like many people, it's also been the place where my Bible reading has been derailed many times in my life. And so today, before I uh, started, I decided to just pull up, uh, we've talked about it before, but the Bible Project video on the book of Leviticus. And I watched that video. And in just a few minutes, I was able to gain perspective and even understand something of the outline uh, and the emphasis of the book of Leviticus that I have never seen before. And it was just so helpful uh, to know that, you know, I talk to people all the time who use those videos as they're approaching different books or to talk about different themes or topics or passages, whatever, uh, to just try to help Christians get a better uh, understanding of what their Bibles are, are speaking or are teaching them. And so as, you know, I used that this morning, it was really, really helpful. So I just want to put that out there in front of people again to say uh, that these videos really can help you uh, get a solid grasp of uh, or prepare you as you are doing your even daily Bible reading. The other thing I would say is just that the thing that's on my mind is even though we're in the middle of unpacking boxes and surrounded by all this stuff, being in a new house and starting to establish uh, new rhythms, there was something that was just excellent about the uh, rhythm, kind of like Lindsay, what you mentioned. Um, Kathy and I sat down, my wife and I just sat down uh, the other night after we put the kids to bed and for the first time sat on our couch in a new home, watched television together and uh, ate bluebell ice cream. And there's just something that seems so perfect about the opportunity to do that, so normal. And, you know, I'm not a Texan. I'm not a guy who appreciates many things from Texas, but thank God for bluebell ice cream. It really is maybe their best export. And uh, it's just something I'm grateful for. You know, Josh, I'm glad you're grateful for it. Ice cream is very good. Bluebell is overrated. I do have to say, I think we've said this before on the podcast. Well, we have said this before because Josh has literally highlighted Bluebell Cookie Two-Step as one of his lunchroom items that he's bringing to the table. I mean, this is like, I mean, our audience is going to think this is deja vu all over again. I'm just thinking, my prediction is that someone listening to this is going to go buy some and enjoy, and it will have all it's been worth true. it. It's true. It's true. 
Bluebell. They should become a sponsor of the URLC podcast. That would be amazing. Brent, you should work on that. If we could be eating it while you're talking about it, Mm, that would be great. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that would certainly help our audio producer, Gary, with, uh, what's it called? The lip smacks? (laughs) (laughs) Or the mouth, mouth pops? Or whatever. Chastising us for the for the mouth pops, <laughs> the mouth noise. Yes. So maybe we should not do it on the air. All right. Well, the thing I'm bringing to the lunch table is uh, is something that I saw on Twitter. It was a post that went viral, and I don't think anybody knows uh, the name of this teacher. But uh, the post said this: In Mexico, school was canceled because of the pandemic. This teacher, who is shown in the photograph, turned to her pickup truck into a portable classroom. She drives two hours a day to teach children with autism who don't have books or access to the internet. So essentially what what this, this lady has done is she set up a table and some seats and has all the material in the very back of her, in the bed of her pickup truck, and... So I'm just thankful that that somebody uh, was able to pull out their phone and, and capture this and and share it with the rest of us because you know here at the beginning of a new school year that is going to bring immense challenges uh, we often forget how committed teachers are to helping their students learn and and wanting the best for them and uh, so I just thought that this was a, a heartwarming little scene that we got a window into and I'm. I'm thankful uh, that that uh, we saw it online this week. Yeah, she she is a hero for sure. A woman who is making the best use of her time during the pandemic and serving others. That's amazing. It really has been great to see so many, not just teachers, but, but teachers especially and others uh, take this time and use it creatively. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but our friend Sam Alberry a few weeks ago had some tweet, and I, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he basically said, uh, during the pandemic, I've had time to, and then he named this like massive list of like accomplishments, like write two books, uh, read through this you know library of works, uh, and then you know accomplish all these other things. And then he said, I didn't do any of that, but I've had time. And uh, I thought that was really funny. Anyway, to see people really, uh, you know, not waste this time, but absolutely like, you know, use it and and use it not only to do great things, but for the benefit of other people is is really cool. And so, Brent, I'm glad you highlighted that. Well, just as a reminder, uh, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with more content.